Thank you so much for listening to Classical Ideas. If you'd like to support this show, you can find the link tree to all of my work in the show notes of your podcast player. Within the link tree, you can financially support the show, locate different podcast players of choice, and find social media links to help spread the work I do here on this show. Any way you can spread the word is deeply appreciated. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Have you ever stopped and pondered the deeper significance of a fading painting on the side of a building? Maybe it was once a billboard advertising the business housed in that building. Or maybe it was a professionally curated mural done by a public art initiative. Or maybe it is street art with particular messages related to politics, religion, or culture. The past few years, I've been overwhelmed with the beauty of the Buffalo, New York public art murals popping up all over town, and I've come to appreciate what these types of artworks can mean for a community. The guest on this episode, Dr. Harold Morales from Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, has only increased my observations around town because he too is interested in murals and public art from his lens as a religious studies professor. Dr. Morales' primary research focuses on the intersections between race and religion and between lived and mediated experience, and he uses these critical lenses to engage Latinx religions in general and Latinx Muslim groups in particular. Dr. Morales is also now focusing on developing public scholarship initiatives through his research on murals and art and social justice issues in the city of Baltimore and through his directorship at the Center for the Study of Religion and the City. The Center for the Study of Religion and the City, or the CSRC, seeks to foster and support innovative religious studies and theological engagements with Baltimore, its religious communities, and its most pressing issues as a case study with broad relevance. 2020 has also been turbulent in nature for spiritual communities worldwide, and Dr. Morales and I explore these topics in the communities around Baltimore. Because spiritual community response to the pandemic has been so uh, varied throughout the years, we get into that a little bit as well. And so for that reason, this is the part this is part one of a multi-part mini-series on projects happening in religion and local spiritual communities in and around the COVID-19 pandemic in the city of Baltimore. The next episode of the podcast will feature a follow-up conversation with a research fellow and local Baltimore community leader, and sequences seamlessly from this conversation with Dr. Morales with additional insights and some interesting overlaps. So I had a real blast chatting with Dr. Harold Morales for this episode of Classical Ideas. You should definitely consider checking out his website at religionandcities.org and enjoy our conversation on murals and his projects in and around Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Harold Morales, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks for having me. It is a delight to have you. I'm wondering if we can just start off by having you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, however you see fit. Yeah, so my name is Harold Morales. I am the son of Esther y René Morales Arriaga. Um, from my mother's side, my grandmother was Rutilia Arriaga Masariegos. And from my father's side, um, my grandpa was Matias Morales Ruano. Um, and they are from Guatemala. I was born in LA um, with deep religious ties to the Assemblies of God, a Pentecostal um, denomination uh, that was very prominent in Guatemala, continues to be so. Um, and it was one of the main reasons why my family made the trek over to the United States. My grandpa first to start an, um, a Spanish speaking congregation um, in Carson. Uh, and then my parents followed um, soon after and then I was born here. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, that's that's me. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, we're going to get a little bit about your academic story too, uh, if we can for a moment. I'm always curious about how people wind up where they are 
the moment that I have the moment that I'm speaking to them on for the show. Uh, I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about a version of how you came to be interested in research focusing on the intersections between race and religion, between lived and mediated experiences. What's your academic path like that took you to your current place that you are today? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, my parents being from Guatemala and deeply connected to the Pentecostal church. For them, um, being in diaspora, being away from their their country and their culture and their language and foods and people, um, going to church was one way to connect. Uh, so we, I grew up in, uh, until I was like six or seven, we left Los Angeles and then went into the suburbs, but my parents continued to drive an hour, an hour and a half um, to LA to go to this one specific congregation where all their people were. Um, and as a Central mm-hmm. American um, Assemblies of God, um, uh, kind of church and it's there that we ate the tamales the um the different um the, the um, enchiladas the um so like all these different cuisines that they were used to um los frijoles negros so like fast forward i'm, yeah. I'm now married to uh um uh, my my wife veronica's um, her family's from mexico and there's this constant kind of like, so are we going to have like the brown pinto beans or we're going to have like the black, like Central American style beans. Um, and so they, I think for, so for my family, um, it was really important for them to connect us to the culture. And the main way that they did that was through, through church. Um, and uh, so growing up, I, I wanted to unpack this. I also felt like I experienced a lot of injustices. Um, and I didn't really know how to articulate those. Mm. Um, and when I when I started going to um, community college, I started taking classes in philosophy, uh, and I was really interested in in philosophy of religion in particular because it spoke to a lot of um, those experiences that I had growing up in church. Uh, a lot of the questions that um, we would ask there, like close reading of texts, seemed really familiar. But also in that community, there was a kind of barrier um, in terms of how far your questioning could go. Um, and when I started taking the courses in philosophy, it, it felt like it opened up that um, that space so I could go deeper, I can ask um, critical questions, and I can be amongst people who are interested in these kinds of questions as well. Um, so I, I finished I finished that up. I went on to, to get my BA in philosophy um, at Cal State Fullerton with a focus on free will and ethics. Mm, um, awesome. And yeah, I, I had a, a neat experience actually where um, I had a paper that was accepted to be presented at the World Congress of Philosophy, and I traveled to Istanbul, oh, cool. um, and I had never left uh, like Southern California. Yeah. Um, so this was my first time out, and it, it was like right, like a, a a year after um, 9/11, and my parents were like super on edge, and family was on edge, but it was like an amazing experience. But like it was like just experiencing TSA in a different way, mm. but also experiencing coffee, um, <laughs> Hagia Sophia. I remember I was like really into Orthodox Christianity at the time. Yeah. Um, so it was like neat to kind of experience that. Um, nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So then um, I was substitute teaching for a while. I thought I was going to be a, a, a middle school teacher, maybe. Um, and I've done then, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was doing that for like four years. Um, I, and but uh, one of my mentors, Ryan Falcioni from Chafee Community College, hit me up. He's like, "Hey, they're starting this new program up at UC Riverside in religious studies. Um, I know this person, that person. It's a really cool um, opportunity." And so I, I said, "You know what? I'll I'll give it a shot." Uh, so not a very conventional um, sort of uh, approach to it, but I took my G- I didn't study for the GREs. I didn't really know what was going to be on them. I just signed up and took them and submitted them and wrote a letter and that was the only place I applied to. So it was kind of like, either I get in or I'm gonna go and get my credentials and start teaching um, at a junior high. Uh, I got in and that kind of like changed, changed the path, right? Man, that um, is so cool, I love that. So yeah. how is, so did you find like some, uh, did it take you a while to find your, your area of interest within that program as well? Yeah, yeah, good. Cause so like when I first went there, I, was, I wanted to work with John Martin Fisher who worked um, in philosophy so I thought I was going to do keep going in philosophy of religion, um, but then I started walking, working with um, Jonathan Walton, who um, who's, who does a lot of things with media studies and critical race theory. Um, while I was in community college, I, I thought I was like having fun with philosophy, but that my degree and my career was going to be in computer graphics. Mm-hmm. So I liked hanging out a lot with artists um, at the time, 
And when I, when I started hanging out with Jonathan, um, he was like saying really um, interesting and critical and deep stuff about um, race and its connection to, to religion. Um, while at the same time being interested in um, these, the, like the mediation aspect of it. I was like, oh, this is like, this intersects really well with what I'm interested in, what I like continue to do. I still had a, like a side business um, selling and, and designing websites. Um, and, and so like at the time I was just like, okay, so maybe I could look at the way in which religion um, and race are intertwined and how those discourses and experiences get mediated onto these like emerging new media technologies. Um, and then Jennifer Hughes came back from, from leave and I started working with her on doing ethnography um, and working on uh, Latinx um, religious studies. So I thought, I thought generally I was gonna look at um, Latinx religions and maybe do a comparative um, sort of study of, of how they were using new media technologies either to develop their identity narratives, to um, garner more representation, um, or possibly to develop new rituals. Um, so those were some of the things that I thought I was going to kind of focus on. Nice. Well, and I know that you use critical lenses to engage Latinx religions in general, sort of like perusing your bio and looking at some of your work. But um, I noticed that you're also intrigued by Latino Muslim groups. Does that have anything to do with your experience going to Turkey um, for that original experience abroad? Like how did that connection get made early in your scholarship that took you down that path of looking at Latino Muslim groups as well? Yeah. So thinking back at it, I think there was a, a kind of connection relationships that were built um, while I was in Istanbul and I flew to Izmir um, from, from Istanbul and um, very different, right? So like um, it, uh, outside of Istanbul, um, there's a, a lot of interesting things going on. But it was it was actually in conversation with Ryan Falcioni from Community College. I was talking about the program and some of the things that I was interested in. And he's like, well, if you're going to focus on um, Latinx communities and the use of internet technologies, you got to check out this one group, um, the Los Angeles Latino Muslim Association, um, which, uh, or, and, and the Latino Dawa organization. So these like, there was these handful of organizations that um, were were featuring their their Latinidad very prominently um, in terms of their organizational um, identity development, um, but also that were were doing a lot of their work um, online, so through these virtual spaces. Um, so I, I was at the time also looking at the NHCLC, the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, and Sammy Rodriguez who was someone that I was um, very familiar with growing up um, it, uh, in terms of like youth leadership in the Assemblies of God, but then went on to create this kind of national um, political platform um, in, in, in which he was connecting. And so I was looking at his website and trying to analyze that. Uh, I was also like looking and working with Actus. And so, and then, and then there was this other community, but both of those were very much active outside of their online spaces. Mm -hmm. And the Latino Dawa organization was almost all virtual. Um, and there had been some like work written on these uh, other organizations um, and very little written on Latino Muslim organizations um, at the time. So it, it was um, something that I started to explore. I started to go and visit the communities um, in Los Angeles um, and little by little a relationship developed. That's so interesting because I don't think that in the history of this particular podcast, I've ever talked about uh, Latinx religion and Islam in the same sentence. You know what I mean? I think this is a legitimately original topic that I've never even thought about on this show before. Um, is this a common uh, occurrence across the country and across the world of Latinx groups um, who are embracing or exploring Islam? Or is this kind of rare to some of the places out West in the US? Um, I think it, it happens um, more in, in urban environments where Latinx populations come into contact um, with uh, like large uh, Muslim populations as well. Um, but I, I think one of the things that, um, so, so uh, there's the estimates range from between 40,000 to 200,000 mm. um, throughout the US. Um, and the communities that I like, the largest gatherings that I've been to um, are never more than 150 um, people or so, 200. Interesting. Um, okay, so um, yeah. tell me how you got out to Baltimore then, because being a born and raised LA guy, going to Baltimore is a big shift. So tell me yeah. how you got out there in the course of this story. Yeah, it was a job market. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> like, um, when I was getting out of uh, like finishing up my program, I was looking at um, positions all over the world. Um, 
and I taught two years at uh, the University of um, Indiana University of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. in rural PA. Yeah. Um, and that was a, a, a great learning experience, but it's also not not what I was used to, not what I grew up in um, living in a large city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so but like living two years in rural um, Pennsylvania, also like I think if I had gone from L.A. to Baltimore, um, it would have been a different kind of experience. Baltimore would have felt very small. Um, but I think coming from rural Pennsylvania to Baltimore, it was like just like full of museums and um, all kinds of uh, different restaurants, uh, right? But um, so that, I mean, that was it. Uh, and I remember like bringing on for the, uh, there was a conference here, an AAR conference um, in Baltimore. And that's where I did like my preliminary interview uh, for the position at Morgan State University. And I brought my family, my two kids and, um, and Vero. And so like I did the interview and I did like my talks and then everything else was sightseeing, getting to know nice. Baltimore and trying to like make the pitch to, to my kids in particular, taking them to the museums. And they were like, I hope you get the job. And, yeah. And, yeah. Nice. So I, yeah. Here we are. That's so cool. Um, are you still doing any research work based in Los Angeles? Or are you kind of like making that trip back and forth whenever you can to continue on working with some of those groups or has it all been virtual since you've left? No, so uh, family's back in LA, um, so we continue to identify by coastally. I think so. Cool. Um, we spend you know two or three months in the summer out there with family, and um, two or three weeks in the winter. Um, and when I'm back there, I always reconnect with um, the Marta Galadari and others at the Los Angeles Latino Muslim Association. Nice. Um, so the relationship continues. Um, I I thought. Um, that I would, so I'm also working on um, a couple of different projects and, um, and I thought I was going to be like just transitioning to focus solely on those, but I, I've, I've got a couple of articles that um, have come out recently um, on Latin, Latinx Muslims and I've got um, at least one more project um, that, I'm, that I'm working on that I'm still doing. Um, and there is a graduate student that I'm working with as well, who's going to be looking at Latinx uh, Muslim foodways. Nice. It's really exciting. So I continue to still be involved um, both in person and then more recently because we weren't able to travel to California. It has been more of a virtual kind of connection. Nice. I, I'm excited to explore your, your uh, graduate students' foodways work as well. I've loved having foodways conversations on this yeah. podcast in the past, so you should definitely feel free to connect them with me whenever they have something that they'd like to get out there into the airwaves. Um, so I live in Buffalo, and so I'm not super far away from where you were in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Um, but here in Buffalo, there's been like, I want to transition to some of your other projects as well. There's been a long renaissance where I live occurring that was like going full speed ahead just before the pandemic. And one of the major elements of the revitalization of Buffalo uh, was the increasing presence of public art murals all over the city. And it's really wonderful to drive around Buffalo and look at the murals here. Um, but I know you've also more recently become academically interested in religious murals. And I want to know where that interest comes from uh, and how you got interested in studying religious murals. Yeah. So when I, when I got to Morgan, I was hired along with so it's a, a combined philosophy and religious studies department. Um, and I was hired along with um, my colleague, Aaron uh, Rodriguez, who's, no longer at Morgan, um, so moved back to, to um, uh, New Mexico. But he um, he he used um, a couple of different philosophers to look at uh, at at religion in particular. And he had his in his talk um, a like Heideggerian uh, analysis of this one mural, um, and I was really drawn to it. And when I was a kid, I I did a little um, street art as well, and and was very interested um, in the art scene is like street art scene in particular. Um, and when I got to Baltimore, one of the things that immediately was just striking was the number of like vacant row houses. So mm-hmm. over and over again. So um, growing up in LA, like I'm no stranger to, to, um, to lack of, of housing, housing injustices, um, people living in tents and things like that. But what I didn't see a whole lot of in LA was vacants. Like the, there, there's, some like buildings that were falling apart yes that weren't maintained yes but like just property that wasn't being used it was like it's really different for me to see 
um, these these houses that weren't being used. And so like that prompted a question, right, about like what, what happened here. Um, but it also like, like there was a stark contrast with the vacants and the murals that were often put on top of them. And so the city is just like, it's, it's dotted with all these amazing um, uh, murals and a lot of them have a lot of different contexts. Some of them are trying to tell the story of the neighborhood. Some of them are trying to like bring up, raise up some critical awareness of some issue. Um, and so like the, the stories, like, like they range widely, but I, I felt like there was a contrast between these beautiful murals and the infrastructure that was like falling apart. Um, and so they immediate, like my immediate hypothesis or gut feeling was that um, the city was investing in um, a kind of like uh, inexpensive way of dealing with blights rather mm. than investing um, more resources. So um, one of the things that that I I like to like immediately raise up when I when talking about murals is this kind of um, relationship between um, the the built infrastructure and and the the mural art. But at the same hand, the relationship between non commissioned um, street artists that are often referred to like graffiti artists. Um, and the muralists. So they like in the 70s, um, the city started um, co-opting street artists to become muralists. So you kind of like bring them into the system um, and, and get to control the narrative a little bit more. Mm. Um, so it's both a way of getting, um, controlling what, what they refer to as blight. Um, and then also once those um, canvases, the walls had a mural, it was less likely that um, street artists would go and tag on them. Um, so there's 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 a lot of like really interesting things going on about who funds the murals, um, how how the um, they're chosen, which artists um, uh, do do the work, um, but yeah, I think like importantly, I was working with my colleague who encouraged me to I had this idea of um, of creating a student um, project, student based project, and that's how it began, where we would look at definitions of religion. Um, and then send the students out to find murals that had religious significance according to those definitions. I often had students come back and say, I couldn't find any. Um, there, there's none with religious significance. And I was like, that's fine. Just use the definitions to tell me why they're not religious in that case. Mm. So it was a way for them to both get to know the city um, and to like work with these categories. And it's, it's been a ride. It's been pretty amazing. So I did find that assignment on your website, okay. on yeah. your blog. And I want to talk about that because as a teacher, I've taught fully in person and fully online religious studies, high school classes. So a good assignment to me is something that is a remarkable thing to do if you can apply it into multiple uh, modes of education, like in person or online. So I try to pay careful attention whenever I come across an assignment that's pretty interesting. And the mural project that you have your students do at Morgan State is authentic, inspiring, it's replicable in basically any major city that has murals and street art all over the city. So any professor or teacher in any major city in the country could do exactly what you do. And I'd love to know a little bit more about that particular piece of pedagogy and engagement that you assign with students and like what you have noticed as some major expressions of student learning. What have they found while exploring the town and how have they expressed their excitement back to you at having found something great? Yeah, so so the going like mural hunting is the first step. And I think so one of the things that happens is that in, in Baltimore, there's all these um, negative perceptions about what the city is. Um, and I think it's important to get the students into these spaces and talking to folks. So the mural hunting is the first step and they have an objective and they're looking to find these murals. Um, I also want them to look at the murals very carefully um, and see what kind of conversations the murals are having with their environment. Right? So um, my, my colleague, uh, Amy Landau, um, who, who's a curator, used to be at the Walter, she's now at the Fowler in UCLA, but she's fond of saying, like, of thinking and, and, and helping students to think about how objects and museums speak to each other. Right? So like, if you were to remove a particular object from the room, What's the message? What, what is the object telling you? And if you bring it back and then maybe even introduce a third object, like what, how does that change the conversation that's happening? And so then I use that to then encourage my students to think similarly about, so like, let's look at this mural very carefully. How does it make you feel? What, what are some of the expressions? What are some of the colors? What are some of the movements 
where, where does your eye go first? So let's have a deep engagement and conversation with the mural first, and then see how that mural is communicating with other aspects of its environment. Um, are people kind of just driving by and ignoring it? Does anybody stop and, and hang out? Is there a bus stop where people kind of like are forced to be engaging with it? Um, what's up with the, the rest of the built environments? Is it falling apart? Is it well-maintained? Um, what are the, some of the like anchor institutions um, around it? Is it a library? Is it a church, a synagogue, a mosque? Whatever it might be, what are, like, where are the conversations happening? Is it at the corner over there? So, let's, so what do people talk about? Um, and then as they introduce themselves as like students of, of religion um, at Morgan State, um, oftentimes a lot of people that they do start talking to, so they do some ethnography, um, just voluntarily um, kind of share their, their religious stories. Um, and so we try to capture those and, um, and incorporate them uh, into, into the project. And then the next step is to then go deep and start going into the archives of that neighborhood um, and look at the history of it um, and, and see what, what are some of the relationships between the past, the present, the built environment, the people that live there. Um, and, and like more lately, what, what I've been asking the students to do is to um, use all of these materials to try to come up with a theory of what, what's the relationship between religions and cities. Mm. It's really fantastic. Do you have a couple of favorites in the city? Murals? Um, so there was one. I was just talking to an artist uh, a couple of days ago, um, Gaia, and he's, he's painting a new one on Green Mount, and it's the, it's the main sort of road that divides um, the, the city into east and west. Um, and there's, um, so, so he's working on a new one, and I was talking to him about um, one of my favorites, which is no longer around. And it was uh, um, an, a, a, a kind of expression of activism um, on his part. So it wasn't commissioned uh, and it was a house um, that was an absentee landlord and was just letting the, the um, building go into disrepair um, and, uh, and waiting for like property values to go up so that he could <clears> flip it. Um, and so Gaia uh, and a bunch of other people like did, did several of these, but he painted a, um, an exodus mural so it's got like this pharaonic headdress, like a, a headdress of a, of a pharaoh um, on top of a house and the house is the face um, and it's a row house and the windows of the row house create kind of like its eyes and it's they're on fire um, and there's like the the, um, the the words exodus at the bottom and then there's a single family house on wings flying about like out of there like escaping Mm. Um, and at the bottom of the row house, there's a cotton field. Uh, so I was talking to him about it and he was just kind of like telling me where he was at at the moment. He's like really frustrated with, um, with the situation in Baltimore, uh, and like residential racial segregation in particular, and how he sees this as an, like, um, an extension or an echo of slavery, um, and the great migration, um, happened then. And now, you have like white flight and that that was like the single house that was like flying away on wings but you have other communities that also are stuck here in baltimore aspiring to get out as well and if they don't get out um, of these neighborhoods that means their their kids grow up um, in uh, in oftentimes violent environments where they experience some trauma and then they go to um, school that are schools that are underfunded and so to statistically they're they're um not, not set up for success and will likely only be able to afford to live in those kinds of houses and kind of stuck in this cycle um, uh, generationally. Uh, and so it, this was a, a mural of frustration for him. But I had a good friend, Ben Sachs, uh, from the um, ICJS here. It's a local inter, um, interreligious dialogue group, uh, the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies. And so like, he's Jewish and he would drive along with his kids and he found the mural profoundly captivating for him. And there was like letters in Hebrew that he was trying to like figure out what they meant. And they mm. weren't really that. So, so Guy was telling me that he, he messed up and uh, not knowing Hebrew, he oh. uh, did like a direct <laughs> translation and it was backwards. And, um, but we have all these like connections and I, I, it was a, like a block away from the house that I moved into first here in Baltimore and, whenever I would walk to, to the, the campus, you know, it's something that I would engage with. Um, but that was one of, yeah, that was one of my favorites and one of the ones that, that sparked the mural project. 
I love that. That's such a cool story. Um, and I feel like that may have given you a, uh, you know, as you were transitioning to living in this new place, it might've been one of these ways that kind of like got your roots settled in Baltimore kind of made you feel like, yeah, I can, I can live here. I can belong here. This is okay. You know what I mean? Cause moving to a new place is never easy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. It was, um, that, that was my entry into the art scene, um, and the museums locally. And, you know, like, as I mentioned, it's, it's at a very young age, that's where my heart was at. Um, and so being able to connect uh, religion and art in these ways has, has been um, a way to definitely settle down. That I love place. it. Well, and yeah. you also, since you've been there, you also have founded, I believe, a center called the Center for the Study of Religion in the City. I'm curious more about this major project that you have going on, about the crux of the idea and its founding in general. Yeah, so the mural project definitely allowed us to, um, to like my colleagues and my students and myself to develop really um, important relationships with a lot of grassroots organizations, um, leaders of neighborhood associations and things like that. Um, and at the same time, I have a colleague uh, in, in my department, Marcos Pistakis Kakovis, who, um, who, who is, uh, he, he, he does philosophy of, of activism. Mm. Um, and he told me this cool story that where he, um, I, I was asking him about the departments um, and in particular that kind of like activism, whether it's present or not. He's like, let me put it to you like this. Um, I, I was hired um, not in spite of my arrests for activism, um, but in part because of those. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of like characterized the departments. Um, and, and he's been an amazing mentor and guide for me. Uh, and whenever we had academic panels, it was always really important to bring in an activist to be in conversation with philosophers. So we took a lot of that work. Um, so for example, we had a, um, a reading group of the DOJ report on Baltimore policing. Um, and we, we had all these like students and, and colleagues and from different departments. And we also invited different folks who had been working on um, police reform or abolishing the police for for numerous years um, and and that like led to this really open like public dialogue um, that would have would have been really different if it was just a room of philosophers um, so we took those two things and developed out a, a proposal uh, to the Henry Luce Foundation to develop this center um, I was taking students to the Maryland Historical Society to do the archival research with the, on, on the murals. And oftentimes students didn't have enough to pay the entrance fee. Mm. So I, I would pay for it out of pocket. Um, they couldn't afford transportation, so I would pay for their lift um, cost. Um, they didn't have like money to, to pay for their food, so I would, I would pay for their food. So I was just like, you know, like I've been doing these things. I want to keep doing them yeah. and I want to do more of it. I just need some, I need some support. Yeah. Um, and so I was also like working with the ICJS and they do this really cool Imagining Justice in Baltimore um, series. It's going on right now. Um, the focus is on water if they do it um, annually. Um, so we've got all these different things going on uh, and uh, and it was exciting. It was framed around religion in the city and trying to figure out what's the relationship um, and for me, one of the one of the things that a, a cities are like a bunch of different things to a bunch of different people. Um, but for me, one of the the primary ways that I see a city is a, um, as an injustice or a series of injustices that haunt, um, that continue to come back. Um, and then I also see religion as a series of of complex and multiple things, but also as a potential avenue for addressing those hauntings, for addressing those injustices. So how can what are those religious communities and organizations that are doing awesome work um, in terms of feeding people, in terms of redressing wrongs, in terms of um, police reform or abolishing the police, in terms of housing justice, right? And how can we lift up those stories um, and try to understand them uh, and support them and, and try to inspire others to, to do likewise? And that developed out into the, the, the Center for the Study of Religion in the City. Wonderful. Um, and I know that a, a, I've worked with a colleague of yours recently, um, Brother Kareem. Uh, what is your involvement with uh, with Kareem so we can tie a little thread between the episodes that you all are working on with me? Yeah, so we we had a we have this project Art, Religion and Cities. And in it, um, it was directed, it's directed by Amy Landau, um, where we look at the relationship between Muse city museums in particular, and the way in which they represent um, religious objects. And we have these series of, of different 
things that we do, we have courses, we have um, trips to different museums in Baltimore and DC and to the Met in, in New York City. And we look at the, like, the relationship between transportation infrastructure, museum cities, like um, the communities. Um, and we also have these community dialogues. And so Kareem was brought into these community dialogues a few years ago um, by a colleague, um, Homer Ziad, and he um, participated in, in these discussions about whether, like, what, what museums need to do to, to, um, to decolonize themselves um, or to like work with others to become decolonized. Um, and just had a bunch of profound things to say. And we've been working ever since to try to um, document local stories of um, black Muslims in Baltimore. The temple number six is here. Um, and there's a, a, a Sunni, a black Sunni Muslim community that's very vibrant and emerged out of temple number six. It's connected to Pennsylvania Avenue in Baltimore. It's um, Black Arts District, and which is, uh, is, is, is up and coming, but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Um, and so it was an amazing opportunity to connect with Kareem. Um, and what we were talking about in terms of like collecting these oral histories, we were working um, on this project uh, in, in, in the spring of, of, um, of 2020 when the pandemic hit and that oral history project had to come to an end. Um, and we transitioned to a new project where uh, the Henry Luce Foundation gave us an additional $150,000 to provide relief and restoration um, uh, to just support these community partners that we've been working with to provide food, housing, um, PPE, so like all these different things. Uh, and we wanted to document those stories as well, that work. And so Kareem was, was part of that project. Wonderful. That's really cool. Well, and there's also a ton of other partners involved. So I know that you've mentioned the Loose Foundation a few times, but if I look at the website for the center, I also see the College of Liberal Arts, College of Liberal Arts, the School of Architecture, the Philosophy and Religious Studies Department. I'm curious how you see all these groups being intertwined and connected stakeholders in this project. Yeah. So, um, like, uh, and Duncan at, at, at Goucher also was really um, seminal to, to the development of the proposal initially and continues to serve on our board. So I, I think of it as a, um, it, so like initially as a network, but increasingly as a community of folks who are invested in their cities and the communities in their cities um, and using whatever resources they have at their disposal to, to, um, to work to improve, um, to, to criticize injustices, um, to lift up good work. So wh whoever it might be, whether it's um, an academic unit that, that is directly connected to the study of religion, um, such as sociology or um, the religious studies and philosophy department or history, I have several um, partners there, um, but also architecture. We have certain um, colleagues there um, that, that help out. So it, it has become a community um, of, of like-minded individuals. Some of us are scholars, some of us are activists, some of us are community leaders. Some of, again, some of us are in the university. Um, some of us are in, in LA, right? Some of us, so like we're all over the place, but um, we're all vested in, um, in, in our cities and we share resources uh, and ideas um, in this way. I think that's one of the ways we connect. Uh, um, in terms of like architecture, there's a cool project that, I, that I'd love to lift up. There's um, mm. one of our community partners that um, we, we provided resources to um, to support the relief and restoration efforts was um, the Plantation Park Heights Urban Farm, just yes. led by Farmer Chippy. He's yep. an amazing um, person, infectious energy. Um, so Samia Kirchner in, in the Department of, uh, or the School of Architecture here at Morgan, um, got a group of students and worked with Farmer Chippy to develop a demonstration kitchen, an outdoor demonstration kitchen it's got a really cool farm. It's got all these vacants that got torn down and now they're just like empty lots. Um, and he developed them out into a farm. I was trying to grow corn uh, in nice. the summer. Yeah. Uh, to like, so like we were reading the Popol Vuh with the kids and, and growing corn and talking about like the stories that are related to and how like humans come from corn and I was doing the three sisters and it, it, it didn't take. So my corn grew really tall, but it didn't, <laughs> it died. <laughs> Um, and Kareem and I got to talk about Farmer Chippy a lot too. So that was so cool to learn about that. I love learning about urban farms and restoration and like things like that that happen within cities every day. It's just so amazing. Yeah. 
I mean, Farmer Chippy is like, this is what you did wrong, right? This yeah. is what happened with your corn. Because I get there and he's got like fields of corn yeah. right, all over the place. And he's working. So like he's, he's raising a, a, a new generation of people that are invested in their neighborhood mm-hmm. um, that rather than, than say, well, there's, there's no healthy food options here. Let me move to somewhere where there are. Um, or let me wait and rely on, on my politicians to like to, to come and fix and address this issue. Why don't I get started? Why don't I just like put, put my hands on the soil, plant some seeds, and and um, and see where this goes? So he's been doing the hard work, and he's now he's getting some attention, and he's like it, it's it's building. And so like this, I'm really excited about this um, demonstration kitchen where he can then take all this um, all the, these fruits and vegetables that he's growing and teach people about like the connection between his ancestors, the soil and the cuisine health, both physically, spiritually, mentally and, and beyond. Right. So it's really cool. I love it. Well, and you know, the center's website is, is really impressive. And you already mentioned the relief and restoration and public theology um, areas a little bit, but I noticed that you have six activity areas outlined on the website. And I'm wondering if you wanted to distinguish any of them or describe those in any more detail at all to kind of talk about any of the amazing projects that are going on within those. You don't have to do all of them because that might take forever, but if there's anything you really want to talk about and describe within those six activity areas, I'd love to know more yeah so i think one of the things um that the public programming continues to be a really exciting aspect of it um where we continue to try to bring in activists and scholars to have um right so like not traditional sort of panels but um and so for we were hoping to bring in um a lot of artists in april and that had to be postponed so we're trying to reimagine what that's like but um Right, so like a kind of like a, a, a festival uh, performance type of feel mm-hmm. um, where there's a space for some academic conversations um, and some workshops uh, and, and so like building up on that. Um, so I, like we um, sponsored a mural tour in San Diego for the last American um, Academy of Religion conference and um, it's Chicano Park. It was a, um, a, a strong thriving um, Chicanx community that was divided by the construction of a freeway. Uh, we put together a, a like post, um, a social media post, kind of describing the ways in which uh, freeway highways um, might like divide up cities and become these monuments to white supremacy. Um, and we so we're connecting that to the stories of Chicano Park in particular, um, and having the elders uh, who are who are very like important to the history of the park as a, a form of like trying to take back a space that was taken from them. Um, and so the park itself uh, has all these murals and becomes a space, a community space. There's a center um, and we have them come and like just guide us through the, the different murals and the significance and the fights that had to go down. Mm. We had we had a, um, someone bring in food and talk about like her connection to, um, to, to her ancestors through the food. Um, and it's like again the public programming we're we're trying to to mix it up where we have like food arts artists um activists workshops um so i think that continues to be a pretty exciting part of it um uh our one one of our um research scholars kayla wheeler um she'll be leading a um a virtual tour of um, malcolm x's boston Mm. um and so like we're really excited about that uh so yeah, like a lot of really cool stuff in terms of, of programming. Um, but the I mentioned the art, religion, and cities is a is a really um, exciting project, and we're hoping to get um, more diverse and critical students into um, museum professions and cultural institutions to help guide uh, a, a new wave of decolonizing the museum of anti-racism work inside of museum spaces. Um, and we like have also this podcast that we're doing mm. on on the um, on the current moments. So like, there's a lot of like really cool things that we're doing. Yeah. I really loved reading about art, religion, and cities section because like I'm often find myself standing in a museum and then there's like these tiny placards that like adorn pieces of art. You know what I mean? And like some of these things are centuries old and you're looking at it and there's this teeny tiny little piece of information and you look around and there's not an art historian standing there to answer questions about a piece of art. So you walk away 
and you don't really gain any additional understanding of what it is that you saw. You just know that you saw something that had a tiny little bit of information. So I really like the fact that your project seems to address contextual knowledge uh, on top of pieces of art that people see every day in museums. I think that sounds so fantastic. Yeah, it's, I mean, one of the things that we're really interested in is was like, um, there's this uh, at the National Aquarium here in Baltimore, um, there's this waterfall and it turns out that it's a replica of a waterfall in, um, in Australia, Gumbera mm. Gorge. And there was people coming to the, to the replica at, at the aquarium and engaging in these rituals. Um, and and the, like, the, the staff was, didn't know what to do with it. And they, they ended up renaming the, um, the, the, the waterfall um, so as to not make a connection to its um, original location, which had um, this like sacred um, aspect to it. And so like where that story was really captivating because it was local, it was dealing with religion, but it was, it was raising a lot of important questions that we'd been thinking about um, in lived religion. So like with um, Robert Ortiz's work or Jennifer Hughes, um, like what do, you, what do you do when, um, when people engage these objects not as um, objects, right? And this was a lesson that I learned also. I took a group of students to a, um, a, a, the Kadampa Meditation Center here. Mm -hmm. And it was framed as like, let's go look at Buddhist art. Mm -hmm. And they were like, super cool. And they're like, yeah, come, come over. We'll talk to you and your students. And they're like, but first of all, we don't have Buddhist arts. Like we have, we have Buddhas. Mm -hmm. These are not works of art. They, they're, they're Buddhas um, that are here. And we, you know, we, we provide gifts and things like that. So these are things that we've been dealing with um, and talking about um, in terms of like how, like how do people engage objects as not objects, but as, as having being. Um, and th that became a really interesting conversation for art historians working as curators in museums um, where they don't uh, usually engage with these objects as, as having being, as having presence. Um, and I think, so like, yes, context, also like from the like presentation um, part of, of the curators, um, how much do people actually read when they're in front of an object was right. a, is a question. Um, <laughs> but then like, what do you do as a, as a museum professional when people start performing rituals in front of an object? Mm -hmm. um, so that's an, an ongoing interesting question that we have um, our students engage in as well. What do you, what do you uh, have as a couple of major goals in the next couple of years for the center? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, we want to do it. So like one of the things that became available during this summer was to bring together a group of like 30 researchers on this project of trying to document the relief and restoration work that was going on in our cities. Um, and so having these kind of check ins and um, these, uh, these, these projects that were leading towards um, documentation efforts, but documentation to lift up the stories and hopefully garner more support for these organizations that are doing good work. Um, Getting, getting more people to volunteer, getting more people to become part of the movement. So I think that's, that's one of our continued goals to, to kind of lift up um, the, this good work and, and inspire, hopefully inspire others to become part of it. Um, again, whatever it is that your strengths are, if it's, an act, like if it's a research position of whatever kind, like let's, let's work together and, 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 and do the work. Um, but specifically, one of the things I'm excited about is trying to develop um, more more networks and cohorts of um, of BIPOC scholars and institutions. So, like we're at Morgan State University is a historically Black university, um, and our our student population is at like 80% um, Black. We have a, a growing Latinx um, student population, um, but it it provides a really um, a, a really good kind of starting point to have these kinds of conversations about where are our resources, our public resources going um, and into these institutions? And it wasn't until, until I started spending some time at HBCUs that I realized how odd my um, experience in academia had been, mm. right? So as a, as a person of color, as a, as a, a Latinx scholar, uh, it, just like thinking back all these spaces, I was always like in, in, the, um, in the margins. Mm -hmm. I was, um, and, and how like that gets normatized, like normatized, um, it becomes a really interesting question for me. So I'm really interested in trying to develop um, more networks and coalitions around teaching courses, um, working on projects 
with, uh, with HBCUs, um, Hispanic serving institutions, uh, with tribal colleges and universities, um, and, and um, kind of figuring out what are the issues that are going on in your university and the neighborhoods that you're located in, um, and sharing some of the issues that are going on with us in, in our, our city, um, and trying to like work together to, to kind of workshop some of these, um, these problems and, and how we connect with the people on the ground. Amazing. That's such an awesome range of projects. Well, Dr. Morales, if anybody would like to know more about your work, where can they find you? Where would you direct their attention? If they were like, ooh, I want to know more, where can, I, where can they find it? Yeah, so it's uh, religionandcities.org. Um, you, and you can find us on the uh, same handle on Facebook, on uh, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and you, you can always shoot me an email, herald.morales at morgan.edu. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been an absolute pleasure learning about your work, your research, and all the amazing projects that you're doing in the community in Baltimore and around the country. It's just inspiring. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a blast.